ladies and gentlemen, basketball fans across the world, welcome to another episode of the Basketball Podcast, the number one history podcast on the Basketball Podcast Network, and we're number one because we are the only one. Jeremy Brenner here, and today it's Pacers Week. Yes, Pacers Week. We love to give some love to some of the teams that don't get as much attention in the national landscape, and this team definitely deserves it. The Paul George Pacers era, the team in the East that challenged the big three in Miami more than any other team. And I've brought on someone that knows this team inside and out. One of the best guys uh, for this team, one of the premier experts. He is a contributor for the Indy Cornrows podcast and for premiumhoops.org. It's Mark Schindler. Mark, thank you for coming on and uh, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. I, I I appreciate you having me on. I'm uh I'm really excited to talk about this team. I I was still coming up. I think I was in high school when uh no, I mean not. I think I know I was in high school when this team was really getting going. They're they're how I got into basketball. So I uh, I appreciate you having me on, man. And that that I love that you said that because that's exactly what I try that what I'm trying to do with this is try to get people to remember the teams when they were when they were younger, and because mm-hmm. I think. Although the teams that we see now are exciting and all, I mean, the Pacers are having a pretty exciting, they have a pretty exciting team now, but the teams that you grow up watching are the teams that, they, if there's a certain je ne sais quoi about the teams that you grow up watching and the teams that turn you into a basketball fan. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Also, fantastic, fantastic uh, use of the dictionary. That was, a, that was I... I, I'll be honest. I don't know what Genesis Qua means, but it sounded great. It flowed great. Um, so props to you, man. That's that's good podcasting. Honestly, um, bro, I'm just trying to. If if something happens, it, you might hear just a filler word, and I might make up. <laughs> let's see how many words we can make up throughout Pacers Week. But yeah, part one today, part two tomorrow. If you want to catch any episode of the Passable Podcast, be sure to subscribe and download to your podcast app of choice. But let's get right into it. So. We're approaching the 10-year anniversary, I guess, of this team, the first team, Paul George's rookie year, mm-hmm. with he was drafted 2010. So let's talk about where the Pacers were going into the 2010 draft. So the Pacers, they they had missed the playoffs, what was it, four years in a row coming into this yeah. 2010 draft. And the 2010 draft highlighted by John Wall and but there wasn't a whole lot of it didn't seem like there was a whole lot of depth like you didn't expect to get like a superstar in the in the late lottery but the Pacers did that when they drafted Paul George there yeah no totally um I mean I think that's a good point when you look at this that is the first time that they've drafted in the lottery pretty much um I mean that's the last time they drafted in the lottery in the past i'm trying to think how many years like you mentioned decade 10 11 Um, years yeah so it's been a while and of course they they hit in a way that was fantastic with paul like i think um there were never really those kind of expectations for him to what he's become i mean been a borderline mvp candidate um and what he grew into in in indiana was special um especially too i mean uh we'll get into it more i'm sure but like the way that he ascended over the first three years and then he had his injury um, in 1415 or headed into 1415 uh like the the transcendence that he had going from from that rookie year up to where he was at was pretty remarkable and we hadn't really seen 
too much like that in Indiana. I mean, even Reggie Miller, who was great. I mean, it took him three or four years to really mold in. And he wasn't, I would argue personally, just, I mean, if you're looking in terms of like uh, the types of players they were, Reggie's definitely a better player than, than Paul was, or I mean that Paul is. Mm -hmm. Um, But like in terms of, pure like on ball creation and ability. I mean, Paul's been the best to do it in Indiana. And you, but before there was Paul George and I guess the bridge between the Reggie era and the Paul George era is Danny Granger. Who's also real beloved in Indiana. And he would lead the, and when Paul George came in, there was, it was still Danny Granger's team. And it was a little bit, I guess when, when Paul George brought in, was he seen as more of a compliment to Danny Granger or more of a replacement for Danny Granger? Oh, I mean, certainly more as a compliment. I mean, I, I always hate saying people forget, but people do forget. Um, Cause I, I mean, it's just such a cliche thing to say. I mean, like one of the things you look at with Indiana uh, a lot of times, I mean, because like we're mentioning guys don't come here through the draft or at least not high end players. Right. So a lot of the times like looking at TJ Warren now, TJ Warren came in, he was a guy who had been off injured in Phoenix, who unfortunately is injured now, um, and just never really was able to carve out a role that um, – well, uh, clearly Phoenix didn't see him as part of their team moving forward. Um, and so Indiana cashed in – literally uh, cash considerations in a second-round pick uh, for T.J. Warren. And you see how he develops here. Um, I obviously became a much better defender. The point is you look at all these guys who come into Indiana – and they're able to flourish, like Jermaine O'Neal, um, guys who won most improved player. Like I think the Pacers have had five guys win most improved player. Um, That's in a lot. The last one, yeah, they they have yeah, a stranglehold on the most. Award. Yeah, um, but Danny Granger was a homegrown guy. I mean, he was drafted mm -hmm. at the end tail end of the Jo era, which you mentioned. You know, the bridge between Reggie and and uh, and Paul. I would actually argue. I mean, the the unfortunately the era did not go well because of Malice at the Palace, and that really. Um, kind of shattered a lot of the Pacers image and they had to rebuild the team completely from that. But mm -hmm. Jermaine O'Neal was incredible. Um, I would probably say in the modern era, he's probably the second best Pacer um, just in terms of what he did here. But I mean, Danny gets drafted at the end of that in 2006. Um, I mean, 2005. And he's funny because he was somebody who was viewed as somebody who could be a full package player. Like obviously a you know, great combo forward in the NBA he had a lot of injury concerns coming out of New Mexico. Um, and he fell to the Pacers at 17 because of that. Um, and that's how, you know, the Pacers build their team by getting guys who are on the margins and, and trying to compete that way. Um, but you look at Danny, I mean, his, the way that he grew in the first four years was crazy. I mean, he went from being a guy who's just kind of in the rotation his first year, uh, becoming more of a consistent starter the second year, full-time starter his third year. And then fourth year, He's scoring 26 points per game on above league average true shooting percentage, uh, actually playing a pretty modern way. Like he was shooting in 2009, he's taking seven threes a game, which is like at that time, that three point attempt rate was like yeah. ridiculous um, and wins most improved player. But that ends up being his only all star appearance. Um, and he's never like pretty much after that, he plays, you know, one full season and that's it. Um and that's just kind of how things went with Danny. Like he was a really, really good player. I think they viewed Paul as a guy who was going to come in and play next to him. Um, and then unfortunately just things kind of went south and injuries. Yeah. That's kind of, that's a bizarre way to go out for someone that kind of just shows up and then vanishes right away. And that's, it's unfortunate because 
I remember when Danny Granger was coming up and he was, cause this was also when I was starting to, you know, notice more basketball outside of my city. Mm-hmm. And Danny Granger was like one of those guys. He was exciting because he was taking so many threes. And I think that was part of his game, averaging 26 a game um, with the way he did it. I mean, in today's game, it sounds, you know, pretty commonplace, but uh, you know, 10 years ago, it, it wasn't. And in Danny Granger, I guess, you could say in in a kind of a backwards way uh, was part of that, you know, movement to where the game is today, kind of pushing the game forward a little bit. But let me ask you this, Mark, when did the changing of the guard take place between like, when did this become Paul George's team instead of Danny Granger's team? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I would probably say, I mean, 2012, 13 is the easy way to put it. Right. I mean, Paul, like you mentioned, Paul gets drafted in 2010. He plays a decent amount of minutes in 10-11 in, in his rookie year. 11-12, he becomes a starter, and they go on their first playoff run. Um, and then you look at – well, I mean, they go on their first playoff run in 10-11. Um, but it, the first didn't extended very, playoff – Yeah, first extended far, playoff yeah, run in 11-12. And uh, unfortunately, I mean, Danny misses almost all of 2012-13 um, and misses the playoffs too. And that's when Paul really started to ascend. They play, uh, obviously, they play Miami in the Eastern Conference Finals. And I think that's when you really see in, in 12, 13, when they start to become a more cohesive team. Um, obviously, that's a lockout shortened year, but they were still really damn good. I mean, they were 49 and 32, which is like close to a 55 mm-hmm. win pace if it's a full year. Um, had, yeah. I believe, the best defense in the year that league. Um, and again, yeah, they go to the Eastern Conference Finals and lose in seven to the Miami Heat. And I think that's where you see Paul really start to ascend. Um, and there's actually – it's funny in going back and talking to some guys who covered the team then because, you know, there was a sense of, uh, I think, hope, you know, at the end of that finals. You know, they lose in game seven. And I, if I remember correctly, game seven really wasn't particularly close, even though the whole series had been close. Um, but they come in all for the next year. They're like, hey, we were that close to going to the finals last year. We're better this year. Danny's going to be back. Um, things are going to be different. And, you know, we're going to be ready to go and we're going to beat the Heat this year. And that was their mentality coming into the next year. Mm-hmm. So I think I, had- the long way of answering the question, it became Paul George's team in that playoff run. Like, I think obviously he was headlining that team throughout 12 13. But when he really went toe to toe with LeBron and he had a great playoffs um, in 12 13, considering his age and everything he was doing. Mm-hmm. So that's when it really kind of transitioned. Yeah. Well, let's take a step back. I'm going to go back one year. Let's go okay. to the 11-12. That, that, I think that was the lockout year. They go 42-24. and 24. Those are 66 games. Oh, yeah. I meant yeah. to say that year. Yeah, no worries. But So that year, they they make a quite a jump. That was Frank Vogel's first full year as the head coach. Now, when Jim O'Brien gets fired, is it a surprise? He's fired after 44 games into the 2010-11 season. So more than halfway into the season, and they can their coach, who had been there for a couple of seasons, he'd been there, you know, three and a half seasons. So, like, do you remember when O'Brien got fired, and and was it a surprise? And what did that do to really change what the Pacers were turning into? Yeah, I mean, so that... (laughs) Frankly, that wasn't a surprise. Uh, I think it was more of a surprise that Frank Vogel got hired because, um, Fra- I mean, obviously Frank was a relatively an unknown. He'd been a, he was very similar to he came up a lot like Eric Spolstra um, mm-hmm. as a video coordinator. I mean, he 
doing stuff as an assistant coach, um, kind of coming up grassroots and he'd never had a head coaching position. Um, so it was very out of nowhere. He was, I believe the youngest coach in the league when he got, got hired as the interim. Um, and I remember too, it was really surprising. Well, not that surprising considering, I mean, they played, it was a five game series against the bulls, but they played really well as a tight series and the bulls were still really good that year. I mean, that was a uh, Derek Rose's MVP year in 2011. Um, so you look in, I think that's where you start to see the team shifting towards being just a defensive powerhouse. Uh, they go 20 and 18 over Frank's tenure to end that year. Um, and, you know, under Jim O'Brien, they'd actually been like a very much so a, a pace and space team uh, focused on being an offensive juggernaut. And they never really were an offensive juggernaut because, I mean, they had Danny was great, but then the two, I mean, they were, he was founded by Troy Murphy and Mike Dunleavy and like TJ Ford. It was not exactly, those were lean years of, uh, that, of that's a scary offensive basketball. bunch you just named there. Whoa. Like, yeah. Blowing yeah. me away right there. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> and, it's, but yeah, I mean, I think that's when you start to see Roy Hibbert really comes into his own in the 12, uh, I mean, not 12, 13, in, in 11, 12. I mean, I believe he's an all star in 11, 12. Um, and he, like, they really start to build the team around him because a lot of times you think of it, Paul George's team, which is correct. I mean, he was the guy who was taking the most shots, leading the offense, was guarding the best guy on defense every night. But Roy was how the team was built. I mean, so much of what the team did defensively was based on what Roy Hibbert could do. Yeah, you know, I think Roy Hibbert was like one of the last guys that a team, I guess, from where he was, because I think what happened to Roy Hibbert was just absolutely just a travesty because he was really good at what he did. Mm-hmm. And in the role that he played, he played it really well. And it's just unfortunate that the league kind of phased him out because of how the he was just a sign of the times. And, you know, he was a rim protector and, you know, he, he never really shot threes ever. So. But that was okay during that era of basketball. You didn't need guys that could, you know, potentially flash a three-point shot. And now you barely have any guys that can't, that aren't capable of shooting a three. And Roy Hibbert and that Indiana team relied on him so much to be that, you know, that tree trunk in the middle of the paint protecting the rim. And, you know, he was, did he, he was a 2013-14 all defense. Okay. So, and I'm sure he got, you know, defensive player of the year votes, you know, frequently. So my thing with, so like this team, it was just, it was like the last team because Indiana, I remember back from, you know, 15 plus years ago, the, the Reggie Miller team, the malice at the palace team, kind of that team was extremely defensive minded Mm -hmm. and that era. I think the Pistons also helped define that era as a very defensive minded era where a lot of the game happened in the paint. And although the Pacers weren't a hundred percent defensive minded, they relied on it. You know, they were defense first and then Lance Stevenson also was part of that, you know, that kind of, I guess, renaissance i'm using the word again but i guess that is a real word but you know d- d- am i am i kind of following this correctly is, is it say is it is any is everything that i've said fair a fair assessment of the pacers in this era yeah i mean i think the one thing i would uh i would kind of say 
too that's important uh and i think we'll get into more as well in looking at the playoffs like uh well part of it was roy being phased out by the way the game changed like that's for certain i mean he's just not a laterally quick guy I actually had great footwork though in terms of what he was able to do in the paint because you just think i mean 7 to 280 was not a mobile guy but he was really good at flicking his hips and being able to um keep his man in front of him and still contesting shots i mean he was like probably the one of the best verticality rim protectors ever like um he was just really good at using his length and and not fouling people um but the biggest problem was just his his uh his confidence got completely shot um mm-hmm. later on in 13 14 um and i think there are a lot of reasons for that um he does not talk to the indiana media anymore um i remember when he was still playing he would not um he would not take interview requests um when he was i, I believe it was either in denver or la he skipped out on post game media when he had an opportunity to uh, when he came back to Indiana for the first time. Um, and now that he's working with the Sixers, he still uh, refuses to talk to Indiana media uh, or take interview requests to have anything on record. Um, there's a lot there with that. And I don't, I don't blame him for anything. I think that the, it's uh, it's tough because a lot of burden and blame got placed on him, but I think that's an important thing to remember when looking at, well, yes, he was phased out by the league and, and how they shifted. Um, I think it was uh, certainly predicated by uh, by his kind of own um, individual struggles. Mm-hmm. We'll talk a little bit more about how the Pacers, in a way, collapsed in 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 the next episode. But mm-hmm. for the rest of this part, I want to focus on this 11-12, especially this 12-13 team, because okay. let, let's focus on some good times. Okay, so. The the Pacers had a cup of coffee with the Heat in the 2011-12 playoffs. They they went to six games with the Heat in the second round. But that 12-13 season, when Paul George ascends into the dude for the Pacers with uh, with Danny Granger, you know, sidelined for a majority of the season, you know, Paul George was leading scorer, 17 a game. And you could sense that this team was a bit you could sense that this team was different, right? So let me ask you this, Mark. When did you look at this team and think this team is better, is the best team that we've seen since, you know, the the Reggie Miller years? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, probably in the playoffs, right? I mean, you look at you look at the playoffs, like I think it's interesting because a lot of times when when we talk about this team, people break it down to 12, 13 Pacers or 13, 14 Pacers. And really it's kind of a conglomeration of the two. Um, Like the beginning of the 12, 13 season was fine, but it was really, they start to come into their own um, later on in the year and really showing stuff. Like, I mean, they started out the year three and four, like nothing crazy. Uh, They're like four and six a month in that they haven't really been doing anything uh, nuts, but I, I really think you see them come into their own, the playoffs and then that translates to the beginning of 13, 14. Um, but it, yeah, I, I think it would be against the heat is when I really thought, okay, this team is, this team is different. Like they have something that we haven't seen in Indiana since Reggie was here still. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was pretty apparent watching them play against the heat. I mean, especially too like that, like LeBron James has always felt to me, like I grew up in Cleveland. So I, uh, I've watched LeBron my entire life and and LeBron has always just felt inevitable, right? Like you watch in the playoffs and it doesn't matter what the score of the game is. Like you're always thinking, okay, well, LeBron is out there. 
there's going to be some kind of run. They're going to come back or the series isn't over. Um, and so seeing that team take three games from prime LeBron James was like, definitely, you know, that was, that, it definitely put in my mind that that team was different. Yeah. So let's kind of set the table for this series. Cause honestly, this Pacers heat Eastern Conference finals, it's, in my opinion, one of the best playoff series in the last 10 years, if yeah. not the best. Personally, I think. Oh, yeah, I would agree totally. I can't not really think as a homer. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely it's a fantastic series. Like I would I would say it rivals with the 13 finals. The 13 finals are also really good. Um, mm-hmm. But the 13 finals don't happen without the 13 Eastern Conference finals. So the Pacers, they're the, they open up as the three seed. They take care of the Hawks in six games. They have the pseudo upset against the, the Knicks in the Eastern Conference semis. And then they go face the Heat. And keep in mind, this is the big three Heat. This is LeBron James, LeBron Raymond James. And they're the defending champions. And the Pacers are kind of seen as an afterthought here. They, you know, it's like, okay, they're in the way of LeBron. And I don't think people really gave the Pacers any, you know, I don't think people really gave the Pacers much of credit in this year. Like, I feel like they were an afterthought. Did that, did it feel that way in Indiana a little bit? Like you have really nothing to lose here. Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily think that they weren't given a chance. Um, at least, I mean, maybe in 12, 13, you could say that they were, well, they were, of course, underdogs coming in. Um, it was a little different in 13, 14, just considering how the regular season went. But yeah, especially in 12, 13, like, I mean, I, I think it was a surprise to most people that it won seven games. Um, and again, like I mentioned, I mean, like they lose by 23 in game seven, like LeBron completely dominates in that game. Um, but you could see the makings of in the first six games, like, okay, this team is really good. Like they are, they're figuring things out. They're grinding out wins against one of the best collections of talent we've ever seen. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that there is a little bit of a surprise factor there. Um, and there was certainly like some, um, like I do think that there was definitely some surprise with, with how well the, the Pacers were able to play against them. Mm-hmm. Because the first two games in Miami, the Pacers, they come out and they they force overtime in game one. And that, I think, really set the tone for the series. Mm-hmm. I think they the Heat learned that the Pacers were not the team that they faced the year before in the second round, that they were going to struggle. I think having Roy Hibbert out there, you know, because Miami also, with their team, they started this whole idea of more of a smaller lineup with flashing Chris Chris Bosch, who was a power forward for the most part in Toronto, and they play him mostly at the center position in Miami. And having having Roy Hibbert there to you know protect the paint really forced Dwayne Wade, forced LeBron James, who you know loved to drive, it forced them to find other ways to score. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mm-hmm. think. You look at um, it's not even just in terms of blocking shots. Like one of the reasons Roy was so good is just his gravity as a rim protector. Like um, so many times, like I was going back for a for a historical podcast I did with a friend of mine last week, um, and just looking at some of the great defenses. Like watching, uh, I I want to say I was watching the eleven twelve playoffs, and you see Derrick Rose like pulls up on a drive. Like prime Derrick Rose is not trying to drive in in the paint, and like that that's something that stands out. Like I, I think you look at. 
guys who like, I mean, you could talk about like Hassan Whiteside can block shots, but he's not really a great rim protector or never really has been an awesome rim protector just because he, there are so many things he does that make him uh, like he, he chases blocks a little bit, not to say like, I mean, it's not like he's ever been a terrible rim protector, but um, blocks can be misleading. Right. And you look at Roy and there, the amount of shots that he altered is what really made him so good. The fact that he didn't even have to block shots to really change the way that, that an offense played. And you saw that with, uh, especially against the heat, like LeBron, um, Part of the reason why people talk about him developing a post game, like he could not drive inside on Roy Hibbert. Like, um, and, and also it's kind of funny because LeBron's part of the reason why the uh, things start get like the verticality rule starts being enforced differently um, because Roy was like so dominant against them. It was actually during a regular season game. I'm skipping ahead again, but in, in 13 14, there was a regular season game where, I mean, Roy just like totally stonewalls him. Um, and the NBA ends up starting to enforce it, and that, that has an impact on Roy. But, um, yeah, I, I think Roy was a huge part of that. And also, too, offensively, like Roy was fantastic in this playoffs because, like you mentioned, they really didn't have a center who could handle him. And he was like – he wasn't the most skilled player. He could hit like a, a 15 or 16-footer. He wasn't great from mid-range, um, but he had like a decent little hook shot. He had like no ability to get off the ground, but – Starting to come back to me, yeah. Yeah, he was just like big enough. Yeah, he was just like big enough to do it. And um he was just efficient enough that it worked. And I think he averaged 22 and 10 in the 13 uh in in the 12 13 series against uh the Heat was like shot like almost 56% from the field. Uh got to the line a bunch. Like he just gave them a lot of problems on the inside offensively too. I mean, that's that's ideal, especially from a guy that you would definitely ideal. (laughs) That's an ideal uh, stat line, especially for a guy that isn't really considered to be much of an offensive threat. And you also Paul George, you also Paul George, obviously. And Mm -hmm. Paul George's playoff hot career high coming into the series was 27. I believe he had it uh, about sometime earlier in this playoff run, probably the first round. And he goes off for 27 in game one. And he hits that mark two more times during the series. And, you know, they win game two. Paul George plays well. Roy Hibbert plays well. David West plays well. And you're going back to Indiana with a split. And now you have home court advantage against the Heat. And, of course, you know, game three, was other than game seven, was probably the worst game that the Pacers played, correct? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, game three kind of took the wind out of their sails and back into Miami. Miami, you know, regains control. But the Pacers, I think what makes this Pacers team so admirable is that they never folded. They never truly folded, I guess, during this series, I felt. Maybe not Mm -hmm. in seven, um, but you could sense that they were putting in as much as they could. And for a team that, you know... I'm a. I mean, this might this might piss off some Pacers fans, but they're not on the same level as the Heat. At least, no, definitely not. Yeah, they totally weren't. That's a. It's a completely fair thing to say. Mm -hmm. I mean, any team that doesn't have LeBron James is it's it's very difficult to say that your team is comparable to them. Yeah. Okay. So so maybe maybe I guess my uh maybe I guess I'm right. But (laughs) you're definitely you're definitely right in that regard. LeBron James is good. That. If you take that's, one, it's, thing a, it's a it, hot take, but I think I think there's some validity to it. If you take one thing off this podcast, that that that's it right there. But you know the Pacers, they they hold serve every time they lose. They come back the next game and they win. 
And then it all comes down to game seven and game seven, you know, Paul George only has seven points. And could you sense that, you know, this team was kind of gassed at the end of the series? I think it was less uh, about being gassed and more just that they, at this point you could see, okay, this team is not as talented as the Miami heat. And I think that's, that's not a, not like a, I mean, you can say it's a bad thing. I, I think I'm less, I'm not really a fan. It's just more like I, I love observing the game. And I think you can see at that point, like this team is still a step away from being a real title contender. Um, they didn't really have quite enough off the bench. Like you look at their bench production. Um, not great. I think they got like three or four baskets off the bench in that entire game. They're playing the starters like close to 40 minutes each. And the heat had numerous guys who were coming off the bench and playing well throughout the series, they always had like that one, one or two buyout guys who were able to, um, to provide like 10 or 12 really good minutes off the bench. And the Pacers just never had that guy in 12, 13. So I think you saw that. And and that's where you kind of come taking, you, you, you take away at the end. You're like, okay, well, what, what move is this front office going to make to try and take that next step? Because you could tell um, there, there was never really quite a, like a true six man, like Tyler Hansborough was kind of the nominal six man. And Tyler Hansborough was, not a very good basketball player. Um, part of it, I mean, there was uh, like his his brother played on the team too, uh, largely just because Tyler was there, and uh, th- there's some interesting ire there. But yeah, like th- they had a scrappy bench, like a lot of guys who played really hard and um, were good regular season competitors. But in terms of what they brought in the in the postseason, it just wasn't uh, what you needed to be competitive with the Heat. Yeah, you know. What's what's crazy about this team though is when they lose in 2013, you know, Paul George is 22, which mm-hmm. you know kind of scares me because I'm 22. But <laughs> like if he's doing all that in 22 and I'm just, you know, I guess I have a podcast that's you know it's somewhat, a start, man. It's a start. It's a hey, start. Comparison is uh comparison is overrated, you know. <laughs> yeah, especially to guys, you know, in the NBA. But um yeah, so we have you know, this team is definitely not the end when, when they go out in 2013. You can tell that, you know, you you possibly say that the best of Pacers, of this Pacers team is yet to come because their team is so young and they have room to potentially add pieces, you know, potentially upgrade from Tyler Hansbrough. But yeah, I mean, when you go out in 2013 – you're looking at next season. You're like, okay, we got this next year, guys. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Like, I, I, I think I mentioned it earlier, but really, like, um, it's, it's, it's just interesting to look at it because yes, the team lost, but there really was. I remember I, I did an interview with David West um, when quarantine first started up, and we talked about this. And um, he mentioned he was like, you know, there really was a feeling of positivity, even though the team had lost. We're like, yes, we lost, but like we want to beat this team next year. Like we know we're like, we're that close to figuring out how to be beating this team. Maybe we add one guy and we're good to go. And and that was the general sense among the fan base um, and just around the team. It was a really good positive feeling headed into, into 13, 14. Mm -hmm. And this is where we're going to park for now, but thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the basketball podcast. Be sure to subscribe and download the podcast in your podcast app of choice, and be sure to follow the Passable podcast on Twitter at basketball. That's P A S T K E T ball. You can also follow the basketball podcast network on Twitter and Instagram at hoops pod net. Thank you, Mark, for coming on. 
Feel free to drop your Twitter handles where the listeners can find you. Floor is yours. Yeah, thank you. Um, you can find me at M Schindler NBA on Twitter. Uh, it's easier just to give you that because that's where you can find uh, pretty much anything I do. I'm always on there uh, putting stuff out on Twitter. Always uh, drop random thoughts on games I'm watching. I was doing that just before I got on here. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks again for having me on, man. I'm psyched to ju- jump into the next episode. For sure. Yeah, we're about to record the next episode. So uh, you'll be able to listen to the uh, next episode tomorrow. Tuesdays, we throw out the part ones. Wednesday, we throw out the part twos because we got to keep you got to keep you engaged. We got to keep you looking for more. So that's why we do that. But thank you so much, Mark. And uh, until next time, rewind and be kind. 